unless you're new here, you probably don't need explanation that your pastor is uh, not always conventional, let's put it that way. Uh, and I'm not trying to be like a contrarian or anything. Because um, I know this is a holiday week, I get that. And you probably didn't expect a bulletin with the word indignation on the cover of it. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't to rain on anybody's parade, but it, it was a reflection of my sense of having my finger on the pulse of what a lot of people are going through. And I don't mean personally, I just mean being a uh, Christian and trying to be a godly person in an increasingly ungodly world. And so I wanted to talk about this topic from a biblical perspective because if you're honest, I'm assuming when you read headlines like Hamas slaughters Israeli children in, in a kibbutz, um, you probably don't feel like going to pick a turkey out at the grocery store, I'm assuming, right? Or when you see mobs looting stores in downtown areas and those stores and corporations just pulling up stakes and leaving these downtown cities, or people uh, rushing in and doing whatever they're doing, burning things down uh, with complete you know, impunity. Uh, I'm assuming you don't feel good about all that. You hear about our governor uh, putting a, uh, signing a law that uh, bars any kind of ban on LGBTQ teachings in the state of California. You see the uh, Anglican Church coming out with new services to bless same-sex relationships. When you See that last election that we had just last week just sweep across the country with pro-abortion uh, legislation and, and the pro-life movement losing just about in every column. I don't know. You probably aren't saying God is good all the time, all the time God is good. I mean, I just don't think that's what you're thinking. And if you are, I'd just like to at least have you wake up to this reality that we live in and out of this one-dimensional concept about God and the Christian life, that everything's supposed to be, you know, copacetic and feel good, and we should feel peace all the time. We don't, we don't feel that way. And so we got to learn what to do with this. There's more to it than just saying, well, you know, stop. Like if someone, if you, you, you gave that customary volley of words that we often throw back and forth in the patio when, when someone comes to you and and, and, and greet you, or you greet them, and you say, how you doing? And they say, what if they were to say, I'm not doing well? Um, or worse yet, what if they said, if you said, how you doing? They said, angry. I mean, just like, wow. Uh, let me help you find the donut table. I mean, let's do something to fix that. You need to stop being angry. Um, I, I just don't know that that's the right response. And when I say it that way, that's rhetorical. Of course, I do know that's not the right response. If you're feeling angry or frustrated, uh, you shouldn't. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. Matter of fact, the Bible has something to say about it, and I think Christians, when they're honest, and I had someone just last week ask me, like, I'm really angry. What, what should I do? Is this wrong? And, and I had already planned to preach on this topic, but I thought uh, it's just, just a great confirmation that... Uh, even on Thanksgiving week, when I got a dangling weekend out here, what are we going to do? Are we gonna try and start this next series in Acts? Or should we stop and just look at what the Bible has to say when the headlines barrage our lives and 
we don't feel all that good. It, it makes, us, makes us angry. I'd like us to dig into a, a passage of Scripture today in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 32, and just see if we can glean maybe a, a, a more multi-dimensional view of the Christian life, how we ought to think about the Christian life and how you ought to deal with your own emotions when you're experiencing things, not just out there in the headlines and the newsreels that you watch, but even when you encounter things this week in your family or your extended family, and you start thinking, well, wait a minute, this irks me, this frustrates me, this makes me mad. You know, is your response to simply say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. You're a Christian. You should be happy. It's Thanksgiving time. Uh, Maybe there's a better response, and of course there is. There's something in this text that I think will help us a great deal, and so I trust some of you are there, and this is a needed sermon. If not, we have free Wi-Fi. You can just watch football or something while you're here. But I'm assuming if you don't need it now, you'll need it later. So let's look at this text. I'll read it from the English Standard Version. Let's just start here, and, and I may not even get through the first few words, but let's look at what happens here in this bizarre text. Because it is bizarre, and I love the ESV translators just they just throw it out there in English, right? They translate from the Greek New Testament, and they just, here it is. And I kind of like that, even though some grammarians and linguists of the Greek language might, might say, well, I'm not sure that's exactly what it means. Well, it is what it says, so I don't, I don't know if it says that. Maybe it means that, but let's try and figure this out grammatically. Let's start with the first words here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. The first two words... We're not a responsive reading church, I understand that. But let me just read, let's just read these two first words together. Ready? Be angry. <laughs> you thought it'd be a sermon like, be thankful, right? But be angry. You know a little bit about grammar, right? This is, this is, a, this is a command. Be angry. It's an imperative is what we call it in grammar. It's an imperative. Hey, Y'all, be angry. Now, it's going to rush to a uh, modifier here, and do not sin. Some would say, the grammarians, some of them would say, well, you know what, this is, I understand it's an imperative, but it's not really telling Christians to be angry. It's a a conditional imperative, they call it. It's a a statement like, like, when you're angry, and if you're angry, and if you have cause to be angry, and if if you have a reason to be angry, well, then just make sure you don't sin. And all I'm saying is, if I understand this grammatical imperative, that's what I want to buy into in this, I got to say, well, would I ever? Is there a sense in which I would think there would be a time when I would be angry? And of course, there is. And all the more, it seems, as we near the day of the Lord's return. As things go from bad to worse, there will be plenty of things that cause me to be angry. Now, I need the modifier. Don't sin. I'd like you to not only feel permission, but I'm going to even stress that you ought to be angry. And if you're not angry, something's wrong with your Christian life. And I'll get there, but let's just start. Be angry and, and do not sin. Now, I got another modifier here, and, and, and something else about the anger you're feeling. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So this is a uh, kind of a, an idiom, right? Like, it's not about you watching the sunset and saying, oh, done. But it is about, this should not reside for a long time. 
So it should be a transient emotion. Because if it's not, verse 27, you're apparently going to give an opportunity to the devil if you let this reside within you. So let me read that again, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You would agree, just looking at that, this is one sentence here. It's got a semicolon and a, colon, and a comma. A semicolon in the middle of verse 26 and a comma at the end of verse 26 and then a period at the end of verse 27. You got one sentence here, two parts, big parts, and uh, you would agree this is all about anger. Right? Don't, don't sin when you're angry if it's a conditional imperative or maybe it's an imperative. Hey, Christian, you better be angry, but don't sin when you're angry. And don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil because he can, he, can, he can leverage that. So be careful with this. Then, if you're a preacher, let's just pretend you're me for a minute, and you've got to preach and say we're preaching through the book of Ephesians the way we're preaching through the book of Acts right now, and this weren't a one-off sermon, uh, you would probably go into another sermon, as I have done in preaching through this passage before, and say, hey, let's talk about thieves for a while. And, and you might have a whole sermon on verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Period. Well, this is a lot like Proverbs. We'll go on to a new topic, verse 29. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Period. Another good sermon. I got, three, I got a three-part sermon series right there. Verses 26 and 27, then I can talk a little bit about, I don't know, the kleptomaniacs in the church, and then I can talk to the people that say bad things, corrupting things. And then, verse 30, man, that one, that's going to be on a Dayspring card. We can have this on plaques in the bookstore. This is, a, this, is, this is an important one. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And people rip that out of context all the time and say, hey... Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's applied and dropped into all kinds of discussions. And can it be? Of course it can. But that seems like a whole other sermon. So in your sermon series, as you're sitting in my shoes and my study, you've got a four-week series so far, and they're all over the map. This is a pachinko machine, if you even know what that is. This is a pinball machine. You're going from one topic. This is like a proverb series. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Wow, that could be, a, if you're Martin Lloyd-Jones, that's a, that's, a, that's a year's worth of preaching right there, if you know who that is. But I guess, you know, being someone who likes to get through the text quickly, that's another sermon about all these emotions, which, by the way, it's weeks away from the sermon you preached in verse 26, and so, I don't know, you might sound quite contradictory if you taught those sermons back to back, but thankfully we talked to the kleptomaniacs and the people about their mouths and grieving the spirit, so we're, we're a month away on that one. Are you tracking with all this? Verse 32, ah, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, sweet. That'll be my best sermon in the series right there. So I got how many sermons? One, two, three, four, five, six. And only one out of the six is on anger. Great. Um, do you see the worksheet here that I printed for you? I didn't print it, uh, but I, I created it digitally. It was printed. Or you downloaded the digital copy. That's a more direct relationship you have with me if you download the digital copy. 
So I created the digital copy. Well, not exactly the PDF, but I created a Word document. That can... All right, what's the point? Look at the verses next to the three points of this sermon. Do you see what I'm doing here? This is weird. Is it a little weird? You take the first part of verse 26, 26a, that's what a means, first half of it, first part of it. Be angry and do not sin. Oh, that must be his first point. Sure. It's an establishing point for this whole paragraph, I'm arguing. Second half, he's got this next point here, verse 26b, do not let the sun go down in your anger. So that's good. I get that, but all of a sudden now he's appended to that, verses 28 and 29. Well, those are sermons two and three in our series. Seems like a different topic. I'm going to try to say, I think this is all put together here, expressing the application of verse 26 and verse 27. And give the devil no opportunity. Give no opportunity to the devil. And next to 27, which is all about anger, right? That's the end of this concept of anger, verses 26a, 26b, and 27. I've now appended verses 30 through 32 saying, look at all this material. It fits into that. So you see what I'm doing here, and even if you don't buy it, and you may not buy it, but I think there's a lot of argumentation I could use to show you. I think he's going to develop these concepts elsewhere. This is not just him bouncing around like a pachinko ball, thinking, well, I'm not sure where to go with this passage. I think God, in his wisdom, guiding Paul and all this, puts all of this together for us to show us something about anger. And so we're going to deal with this. That's why I think there's a close association with verse 31, for instance, with the whole point of the verse 27. So the topic is anger. That's a little too much into my head and my study, but... I just want you to see this, I think, fits together well. Even if you don't buy it, that that's the intention, the principles are clearly there, and I'll try to prove that to you this morning. Does that sound interesting? Let's dive into it now. 26a, be angry and do not sin. It's almost like it's an imperative to be angry, but make sure that anger is not expressed in a sinful way. Well, should I really be angry? I think it starts with us just making a simple observation about anger itself, and I'd like you to jot it down. Number one, you need to realize anger can be righteous. There's a lot of anger that seems to not be righteous. We see passages like we've read in James chapter 1 just recently. Did you got the anger of man? It doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God, but there must be another kind of anger that is not so bad. It must be a good kind of anger because, I don't know, here it's telling me to be angry. And I can't even get through the paragraph. In verse 31, I'm told not to have anger. I'm supposed to put it away from me. So there must be a difference between the kind of anger that i got to get rid of and the kind of anger I should have. Or at least, even if I'm going to read this as a, as a conditional imperative, at least it's a kind of anger that you can have and it's not sin, but make sure you don't sin when you have that emotional reaction. So we got to start with that. Realize that you and I can be angry and still be righteous, and let Perry Mason here bring Exhibit A. Ready? Um, let's just put it down this way. Uh, our perfect God gets angry. Jot that down. Our perfect God gets angry. Now, I'm going to ask a question, and you're going to answer it biblically if you possibly can. And I'll even give you a verse to look up to answer it. Psalm 7, verse 11. Here's my question. How often do you think our perfect God, the Bible says who cannot sin, how often do you think God gets angry? Angry. Sinless anger is often called indignation in the Bible. 
It's a kind of righteous anger, you might have been told. That's not a bad way to put it. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he got angry at the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And then a whole lot later, he got mad at the Assyrians, it seemed. And then he got angry at the Babylonians, and he got angry at the Greeks, and he got angry at the Romans. I, can, I don't know, like every few hundred years, he gets angry. Did anyone look up Psalm 711? How often is God indignant? What does it say? Every day. Every day. Our righteous judge is angry every single day. And even if you glanced at the next verse, which was, I don't even want you to look at it, but look at it. First of all, um, he's getting his sword ready for judgment. Preached a sermon on the anger of God years and years ago. I was a lot younger, a lot skinnier. Lady at the door said to me, my God did not get angry, is what she told me. And I know this gal had been in church for a lot of years, clearly not listening, uh, but I responded to her, I said, can you tell me what you think the word wrath means? Because you do believe in something called the wrath of God, don't you? Right? Let's just personalize the word. What does the word wrath mean? Look it up in an English dictionary. You don't need a Hebrew lexicon or a Greek lexicon to figure this out. Wrath is like extreme anger. And the Bible says God feels anger every day, every day. And you'll never forget this verse reference, 7-Eleven. How often do 7-Elevens get robbed? Every day. And God gets, gets mad at it every day. Psalm 7-Eleven, you'll quote that now. Maybe at Thanksgiving dinner. 7-Eleven. God gets angry. Now, when you start singing, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. Let's just say you sing that song. I'm assuming what you mean by that is that God is good to, like, his kids. Or even in common grace, God is good, and, and, and he sends his rain on the, on the crops of the evil and the good. Okay? Um, you might be thinking he's good. He's good in the sense when Jesus said that no one is good but God alone. It's like you might mean moral purity. You might mean ethically clean. He's a pure, holy God. And you might think that. If you do think that, I'm going to tell you that's why he isn't good with all that's going on. He is a good God. He is morally and ethically pure and holy. And because he's all of that, he's not good with how things are going. You ever see those memes online, how it started and how it's going, the split screen? So funny. It's a good one. If the sermon gets boring, just look up those memes. Super funny. How it started, how it's going. Here's how it started, by the way. When I say it, I mean everything. Genesis chapter 1, verse 30. I think it's verse 30. God said he looked at everything and he made, and he said it is very good. That's how it started. God looked at everything he made. He saw Adam, and he says, it's very good. It's very good. That's how it started. How's it going? Well, I quoted a few headlines. It's not going very well. It wasn't going very well by Genesis 3. It, was, it certainly wasn't going very well all around the whole globe that he had made by Genesis 6. Everybody was sinful, and it said it grieved God to his heart, and then he wet his sword, to quote Psalm 712, and he went to work on flooding the world. God is angry every day. He's a holy God, and if you say he's good, I have no problem saying he's good, and he's even good to us sinners. He is good. To the penitent sinner, he pours out his mercy and his grace. Jonah was sent where? Sunday school grads. Where was he sent? Where did he go? Where did he try to go? 
Tarshish. Chapter 4, you don't need to turn there. Can you remember the story? He's trying to justify to God why he was running to Tarshish. And in chapter 4, if you know this little book, God had already forgiven the Ninevites, who, by the way, were like one of the arch enemies of the northern tribes of Israel. They were the arch enemy. They were the decimating enemy of the northern tribes of Israel. And here's Jonah, and he's saying, I didn't want to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, because you are a merciful, kind, gracious God. You relent of disaster. When you threaten people and you say, you, you're going to get it, you, 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 let them, you let them off the hook. I did not want to come here. Why? Because I don't like these people, and I didn't want to tell them judgment was coming because that warning alone might spark revival and repentance, and it did. And now here I am, sitting under this tree, seeing if maybe, maybe I'll see a mushroom cloud over Nineveh, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm mad about it. You've forgiven them all. If you've been through Old Testament survey or you're an astute self-learner in the Bible, you might think about the minor prophets of the Old Testament, 12 of them, and you'd say, okay, I know there were two prophets that went to Nineveh. Who was the other prophet that went to Nineveh? Nahum. hundred years later, Nahum is sent by God to the same place. And he shows up. We might want to look at this one. Let's look at this one. Nahum chapter 1. This is a good one. Probably not a one to recite at your Thanksgiving meal, but it's good for you to know it on the weekend before Thanksgiving to think, okay, our God is a righteous judge. He is angry, indignant every day. And here was a hundred-year lapse between the repentant generation. I don't know, what was going on in America a hundred years ago? A little different than now? Yep, a little different than now. About to go through the Great Depression, out of the Great Depression, a lot of things happened. <laughs> you know, we, got the, we got a couple of world wars. Uh, we have a uh, kind of a, a laying down of roots in our country, of a, a, a commitment to God. And you might see, right, like 70, 80 years ago, something happening in our country. You say, okay, well, that's a whole different generation. Well, a whole different generation had grown up in Nineveh. And in Nahum chapter 1, here, God sends Jonah, I'm sorry, Nahum, to the same place he had sent Jonah. Look at verse 2, and it says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He's full of extreme anger. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, here's the thing that Jonah had said. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, right? Slow to anger. And that is kind of a throwback and kind of a recapitulation of the whole theme of Jonah. He's great in power, and here's the deal. He may be slow to anger, but he gets there. As I like to say, dad eventually gets off the couch, right? When the boys are doing what they shouldn't do. Eventually, dad gets up. It's not a good thing. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Give some examples, some poetic examples. You can see this is not prose, this is poetry. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? That's just anger. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And sure enough, everything that Nahum had said comes true, and Assyria is decimated. Go to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 puts in summary fashion the whole principle of what we see taking place with Nineveh. They're warned, they respond in repentance, God relents of the disaster that they deserve. That's called grace. He's a merciful God, long-suffering. But in time, and it took about 100 years for Nineveh, God says, we're done, we're done, we're done, we're done, we're done. 
and he wipes them out. The priests were standing up in the post-exilic period after the Babylonian captivity. This is what's going on here in, in Nehemiah. And he's, they're preaching to the people. Drop down to verse 29 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Is that where I turned you? Look at verse 29, Nehemiah 9. And you warned them, looking back at Israel's history now, you warned them to turn them back to their law, to your law. In other words, just like the warning came, because really, if you think about what Jonah's message was, it wasn't repent. He didn't tell them to repent. He just said, judgment is coming. And that judgment warning was enough to lead them back to moral laws. They weren't even Israelites, but they knew what was right and wrong. God had written the law on their conscience. Yet they acted presumptuously, and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does your rules, they'll live by them. But they were stubborn. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks, and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them, and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. They wouldn't listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not Make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I'm trying to say this. You can sing songs about God's mercy and grace. It is not to the exclusion of his justice and his anger. We just have to stop with this one-dimensional view of God. It's not like God was, um, was happy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, well, I'm sorry, angry in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's, he's happy now. Um, not the case at all. Matter of fact, if you want to look at what the Bible has to say, you'll see parity between what God is thinking about things. We've got an Old Testament destruction of the world in Genesis 6 through 9, and we have a New Testament destruction of the world promised throughout 2 Peter 3, the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. Uh, God is going to judge the world. And it was promised in Genesis 6, God was going to judge the world. Why? Because of sin. He's waited, he's been patient, he's long-suffering, but eventually the suffering reaches a, a, a point where his wrath, his anger, his extreme anger is poured out. That, by the way, should give us sobriety even if we look at our country in a 100-year descent or maybe more like a 75-year descent right now in America, in the America West. Because you don't, we don't have to be talking about church services here. Just like Nineveh, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't worshiping under the, the Mosaic law. But God was going to say enough. God is angry, and it is not to the exclusion of his grace and his mercy. And you can see that just in summary fashion here in the message of the priests and the leaders of Israel in the post-exilic period. And he's looking back at Assyria taking out the northern tribes of Israel and Babylon taking out the southern tribes of Israel. And he's saying, it's just like Nineveh, really. I mean, I'm saying, I'm making the parallel between Jonah and Nahum, those two prophets sent to the foreign countries, which even is an act of grace. Why is God warning them? Well, because God's caring about everybody around the world. He cares enough about them to grant them the dignity of judgment when they don't listen to his law. So our perfect God gets angry. And if our perfect God gets angry and you want to be like God, you're, we use the word godly, this adverb, I'd like you to be godly. Well, if you want to be more like God, well, then I guess you can't go through your life with tranquility if you live in a world like God is overseeing right now, and that is a sinful world, a world where people steal, they do terrible things. One of the headlines that I read, teacher in Florida beaten unconscious by one of, one of her students. Right? You can't read that and think, well, 
That's all good. No, God's not good with that. Is God good? God is good. That's why God is not good with that. And you shouldn't be good with it. How does it make you feel? Well, two things, and let me ramp up to anger. Let's start with something that we've read a lot about, particularly in our DVR in the book of Ezekiel. You started in chapter 9 thinking about this theme, I trust, when you read it, because I quote it from the pulpit quite often. As things were declining in the southern kingdom of Israel, in Judah, it got so bad in the culture, much like our culture is right now, sexual immorality, all the things, homosexuality was rampant. One of the reasons God was going to judge them is because they started to look like the Canaanites who Joshua and his generation decimated because of their sin, and one of the sins was their homosexuality, by the way, the perversion of sexuality. This is happening in the case, in, in, in what's going on in God's judgment of, of the world. And all of this is leading Ezekiel in Ezekiel 9 to say, I'm going to look at the people that claim to be my people, godly people, and if they're not, here's the word that's used, groaning, then I'm going to say they're really not godly people. And in, in, in Ezekiel 9, you might remember, the angel was supposed to go out and ceremonially mark them if they are growing, groaning, and if they're groaning over the sins of their generation, well, then they get spared. God's going to protect them. So one of the signs of godliness is groaning. Today's Bible reading was Ezekiel 26, or uh, Ezekiel 21. We were in 20 and 21 this morning, or we're going to do it this afternoon. God tells Ezekiel, he calls him the son of man, for you, son of man, you're to groan. You're to groan with a breaking heart and with bitter grief. Groan and groan before the people's eyes. And if they say to you, why are you groaning? You are to say, because of the news that is coming that there's judgment. Do you groan over what's going on, whether you're watching looters or people burning things down or students beating up teachers or whether you see uh, militant Hamas uh, fighters going in and killing You should groan. Let's just, at a minimum, you ought to groan. Groaning, I'm talking about that feeling of lament and sighing and crying or bitter grief is a good word. Breaking heart, does it break your heart? If it doesn't break your heart, or you do this, like a lot of people in our church. I don't want to read the headlines. I don't want to listen to the news. I don't want to hear any of that because I don't want to feel bad. You've got to feel bad because God says you cannot be godly if you do not feel bad about what's going on in the world. Be angry. And let's just move it to anger now. Anger is when all of that bitter distress in your heart that you're not happy with what's happening in this world gets you to a place of feeling that real belligerent feeling, the uncomfortable, non-tranquil feeling. Of, I'm angry over this. Let's turn to Psalm 119. Go to near the end of this psalm. It's all about the Word of God. Almost every verse has some reference, some synonym to the Word of God, God's law. And one of the things in such a long psalm, right? It's an acrostic poem. It's 176 verses. You've got, and these headings are all Hebrew letters, by the way. This is in the section on Resh. I want you to look at, at Psalm 119, verse 158. Sometimes he's saying, well, I look at the law, and I see people that disregard the law, that throw the law behind their back, like we've seen in the book of Ezekiel. We see in, in, in Psalm, 50, uh, Psalm 50, a good example, taking the words of God and just throwing them behind my back. Here's how the godly writer of Psalm 119 puts it. 
I look at the faithless, right? They're not faithful to the rules of God with disgust because they do not keep your commands. I'd say that's a little bit from sighing and groaning to now I'm disgusted by this. Do you ever look at the news and get disgusted at it? Or wives, do you tell your husband, stop being so disgusted, stop telling your husbands that. Right? Let, don't let them throw anything at the TV, but stop telling them not to be disgusted. You ought to be disgusted. We all ought to be disgusted by people that take the law of God and throw it behind their back. And I don't mean to overgeneralize, but that's how it often works. Let's go back a few verses. 139, in the same Psalm, verse 139. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. They're continually piling up wrath for themselves for the day of God's wrath. And my zeal, that's a passion within me, it consumes me. It starts to bubble up. It's, it's more than just sighing. It's more than just disgust. Now it's just my passion inside of me is getting riled up. My blood pressure's going up. The vein in my neck is starting to pop out. I'm consumed by my inner feelings of passion. Look up at, at, at verse 136. It's also a sense, an expression of sign. It should bring tears to our eyes at some point, that the sin that takes place. My eyes shed streams of tears, not just a couple drops, not that I got a little misty. I'm crying because people do not keep your law. I could keep going backwards through this psalm, but let me just get to one of the strongest statements, all the way up to verse 53. Verse 53, same psalm. I just don't think it could put any, be put any more strongly than this. Something seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. What are the two words there? What are they? Hot indignation. <laughs> sometimes I say, I'm angry. And then sometimes I say, I'm red hot angry. And then sometimes I say, I'm white hot, red hot, angry. I'm just angry. And you know what? If you're angry at the right things, God's going to say, attaboy. That's my girl. That's how they ought to act. They ought to groan. They ought to sigh. They ought to be just in their own hearts disgusted. They ought to cry. They ought to be angry. They ought to have hot indignation. This is just a godly response, and we could look all over the scriptures at this. It's everywhere. Okay, it'd be a bad time to end the sermon, because all I got through was the first half of verse 26. Be angry. You should be angry. There's a lot that should make you angry. Oh, qualifier number one, and do not sin. Sin. Not doing what God wants us to do. So apparently... There are things I could do that God does not want me to do. I could have an emotion that's so powerful like anger that could motivate me to do something that is not what God wants me to do. So I need to not sin. And what would it be that God would not want me to do? Well, whatever it is, I should do the opposite of that. So can I be angry and do righteous things? Answer is yes. I don't want to be angry and do unrighteous things. So let's state it positively because it's Thanksgiving week. Let's be positive sarcasm, because this hasn't been a positive sermon. Am I the only one feeling that at this point? Number two on your outline. And then we'll use verses 28 and 29 as examples here, but let's just quote the principle. Don't sin. So if I'm not sinning, then what? Do righteous. Let's turn it over. Let indignation, that's righteous anger, propel, that's a good verb, constructive action. Number two, let indignation propel constructive action. 
Why do I use the word construction, right? Well, because construction is used in this context. And the context gives me two examples. One is of the thief, and one is of the person that says dumb, stupid, hurtful things. So let's look at it. In verse 26b, not sinning, I want to say if I'm not going to sin, then I've got to do the right thing. Verse 28 talks about people that are stealing. Let the thieves who, uh, no longer steal. Now I'm thinking, well, that was my profession. I was a thief. Okay, well, don't, don't do it anymore. No, but I was good at it. If you were good at it, you work hard at it. Right? You've got to work hard. You've got to think about how to get away with it. And the more you steal, if you're going to make six figures stealing every year, you're going to have to work at it. It's going to take some effort. All of that motivation to earn that money, to get that money, why do thieves steal? Well, that's why, unless they're, they're crazy, they, they don't steal just for the thrill. They, they, they want the stuff. They want to make, they want easy money. Easy, at least, that I can get it now, but it's not easy to get because it takes some work. So all of your efforts to steal, Mr. Thief, we want you to stop doing that, and instead, we'd like you to work hard in a different way. Let's do it honestly. Let him rather labor, which is a really strong word here. You just do the hard work and make sure it's honest work, right? I don't want you to do something that's not honest because when you steal things from others, that's bad. Those people have the right to it. All the principles of private property, ownership in scripture, all about this is mine, fence posts, don't move the markers. We believe that guys who make their stuff or inherit their stuff, right? That's their stuff. They have a stewardship, a responsibility, an ownership of it. And, and you just can't take it. You can't go into my garage and steal my stuff. You can't do it. It's wrong. And for me, that's destructive, and it's destructive for society. But if you'd stop stealing, working for stealing, but you'd work rather to work honestly with your own hands, get your hands dirty and calloused in this, then guess what? You can have something to share with anyone in need. So use your effort, Mr. Thief, to stop stealing and start doing something constructive, so much so that you've got enough left over in your bank account where you can just go and buy something and be a blessing to people and give them stuff. They got a need, you can meet it. The problem, let me meet that. How'd you get that? Well, I honestly worked for it. I worked with my hands. Look at my hands, they're callous. I worked hard to get this, but I worked hard not just to meet my needs. I'm living beneath my means now, and I'm able to give to you stuff. I want to help you. There's a need, I want to meet that need. The parallel to not sinning is that I want to be the kind of person who does what is right with my motivation, which is not, I want to make a lot of money. It's, I have this feeling and I want to make things right. I can make things right a constructive way or a destructive way. I'd like to do it in a constructive manner. So anger can be destructive. Even righteous indignation can be destructive. I've had so many people confess to me and they're angry about the right things and they present to me a completely flawed strategy to relieve their anger. Like, nope, that's not it. You've got to constructively decide how to deal with your anger. If you're angry, think about it. You can brood, you can agonize, you can be annoyed, you can be exasperated, you can do a lot of things, and all those will be is, is, is corrosive in your life. God says, that doesn't help. You could be vindictive, you could be, you could be vengeful. No, don't do that. But there are a lot of things you can do that are helpful. So I got to think, what can I do that's helpful? Like the thief, what can he do that's helpful instead of destructive? Here's what you can do. You can work hard, and then you can have enough money to give away. Well, I can do something with my anger. I can give. I can pray. I can serve. I can do something in my life that says, take this anger and use it as a motivation to do what is constructive. 
the parallel in the next verse, which I think is helpful, even more because there's so much more application in this regard. Verse 29 says, think about someone with corrupting talk. It's talk that tears down. It's the kind of talk you might slap this trendy label on. It's a toxic kind of, it's a great Greek word, sapros. It's, it's bitter, it's corrosive, it's acidic, it's not good. They have that kind of talk. Don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good, here's our word construction, for building up, for constructing. Now that's a, a word literally about constructing, building a building, but it's used metaphorically about my words. Can I help with my words? Building up. And let's make sure they're set at the right time. It fits the occasion. And let's see if we can make God's grace abound in that situation. Is there something I can say that will help grace, the move forward the favor of God? Because you know what makes me mad? It's the stuff that makes God mad, and the favor of God's not on it. Matter of fact, he's storing up wrath, more and more anger for the day of his judgment. But I would like God's grace to prevail. So this is not just what can I do, but more likely there's, a, there's more that, that we as Christians are actually sanctioned to do that we should say. So if I'm going to say, I'm feeling angry, which is exactly what we said, you're going to feel angry. I want to make sure that I'm angry, but I say, what can I now say that's helpful? And what can I now do that's helpful? And I'm saying, well, there's a lot of things that we say when we're angry. We yell, we complain, we rant, we criticize. We do all the things that are just really, the Bible would say, destructive. And he's going to unload some of those words later in this passage but I can do a lot that is motivated by anger that is right. I can reprove, I can rebuke, I can exhort, I can teach with all patience. I can be the kind of person that explains and corrects and writes and teaches and, and, and let's just use a biblical word here now, preaches. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. There's not one example of him preaching. But in his life, right, there's this sense in which God's judgment is coming, and he's doing everything to prepare for the survival of the planet. And we know God's judgment is coming. We want to pluck people away from the sin of this culture and into the ark. We want to get them saved. We want grace to abound in their lives. So if you're angry, I'm just saying, praise God you're alive. You have a biblical pulse. Now I'm saying, what can you do with that anger that is constructive? It may surprise you that uh, Martin Luther said, depending on how well you know church history, it may not surprise you. Uh, he said in one of his table talks, he said this, I find nothing that promotes work better. This is 500 years ago, the reformer. Oh, this is a nine o'clock crowd. I don't have to say that to you. You know, you know that, right? The great reformer Martin Luther said, I find nothing that promotes work better than angry fervor. Does that surprise you? For when I wish to compose or to write or to pray or to preach well, I must be angry. I need that. It refreshes my entire system. My mind is sharpened, and all the unpleasant thoughts and depression fade away. Why? Because he's aiming, he's locking, he's loading, he's getting ready to do something that will be constructive. Pray constructively, write constructively, compose constructively, preach constructively. He wrote songs, he wrote sermons, he, he, he counseled people, he corrected the wrongs of the Roman Catholic Church in his day. He said, I first need to see that the motivation of anger is a good virtue, a godly virtue. It's called indignation. It clears my mind, it focuses. I preach these homiletics classes at CBI, teaches people how to preach, how to teach. 
And I always say there needs to be this, this element we call urgency in the pulpit. You need to have a sense that the passion within you is stirred, that this is the most important thing that these people can get. And every week, you've got to get that passion up where you say, this needs to be communicated. And you need to care about nothing else but communicating that message. And, and I'm saying something that, as Luther said, will sharpen your mind and refresh your entire spirit is anger. We're always preaching to solve problems. You know that. We're always preaching to, to mortify sin. We're always doing things that are trying to correct. And when you're angry, I'm just asking, what, what can that do to refresh your motivation as fuel to do something constructive, to say something constructive? Anger's not bad. Anger is godly. But it's got to be directed in the right way. It's got to go in the right direction. Be angry do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You want to make sure that this does not reside within your life, because if it does, it gives no opportunity. It would give opportunity to the devil if it stuck around a long time. So I want to deal with that, the residual constant anger. And, and Martin Luther provides a great example of this. If you do delve into church history and learn more about Martin Luther, he's one of the most jovial, humorous, witty guys I mean, ever captured in, in, in his writings. He just, he is a, uh, a man who knew how to have a good time, how to rejoice, how to laugh. He loved music. He loved children. I mean, it reminds me of, of Moody. He loved having the children come to him. He loved giving them candy. I mean, Luther was someone who rejoiced in life. He was a happy person. And yet he's saying, you know, my best work is done when I'm angry. See, he, here's a great composite of what I'm looking for. I'm not saying I want you to get angry over the headlines or over things in your world or your homeowners association or your work or your manager or your boss, and they're doing bad things, unjust things, things are happening in your industry that are horrible. Get angry and stay angry all week. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm saying when you're angry, what can I do that's constructive? And then I'm saying make sure that does not stick around. It's much like guilt. It should do its job. It should drive to action, and then we're done until I'm angry again. We move on. We've got to not let the sun go down on our anger. It cannot reside because it degenerates into something that I think is well said there in our passage. Look at verse 31. It, it, it says bitterness. I just, let's use, use that as a heading. A lot of words that are spilt there to describe this lingering bitterness, but let's just use that word. Number three, you need to not let anger make you bitter. You can't. Don't let anger make you bitter. Number three, it's it's. And I think that word, I mean, I know that's a word about taste, but it's an analogy that helps you understand, I can have this really bad taste in my mouth all the time. And Luther, being the heavyset, portly man he was, didn't let, he made sure to stuff some good tasting things in his mouth, as I trust you'll all do this week, and you ought to. Those who believe and know the truth, First Timothy 4. Um, we don't want to live in this anger. We want anger to motivate, do something. It's not, you know, making pipe bombs in the garage. It more likely is writing a letter, saying something, shooting off an email, having a conference, having a meeting, praying a different way, more specifically and ardently. But there are three things here in verse 30, 31, and 32 that I want to highlight. How do I make sure my anger doesn't turn me into a bitter person? Verse 30, 
One thing that would grieve the Holy Spirit is if my response to righteous anger is unrighteous behavior. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then, geniusly, God has Paul add this line, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If I said to you, if I asked you, are you redeemed? I think most of you would say yes, but I would say not fully. You're redeemed only insofar as forensically, legally, God has taken your sin. If you are a Christian, he said, I'm not counting it against you. That's, a, that's, that's the Greek word, logizomai. It's an accounting term. He has said to you legally, you're not now in the guilty party. You, you've been exonerated. But guess what's happening all around you? Consequences of sin. Even in your own life, you're sowing and reaping. A lot of bad's going on. So you're not redeemed. Redeemed is a word that is used in the slave market in the first century Greco-Roman world where you'd go and find a doctor, you know, it could be someone working in the fields, but it was all kinds of people. You had a lawyer, you would buy them as a rich man. You'd say, I'm going to take them, and they're there in that, that, that slave market. They're debtors or whatever. I'm going to take them out because they have a skill, and I'm going to use them, put them into my compound, my house, my household. We're going to redeem them. Well, you may re- be redeemed, but before, you know, the auction is over in the slave market, uh, you're still there. But you might be owned, someone might be filling out the paperwork to own you, but you're not redeemed until you get where you're going. And when you get where you're going, that's called the redemption that we're all going to receive when God makes all things right. Speaking of groaning, you know the passage, I've quoted it recently, Romans chapter 8, whole creation is personified as groaning, and we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, we long for the day in which we will be redeemed, redeemed, the redemption of our bodies. Why? Because it's in concert with the redemption of creation. God will now take it from the curse that it's been subjected to. He'll remove the curse. He'll take us and our bodies and all the things that we talked about in that fighting the spiritual passions of our lives sermon recently, and he's going to take all that out, give us a resurrected body, and it's only going to want what is right, and we will be fully redeemed. But we're not redeemed yet, but we've been sealed the Spirit of God, we don't want to grieve by sinning in response to our anger, but we must be remembering that we are going to be redeemed. So, letter A, you don't want your anger to make you bitter, you better have hope. And hope is biblical hope, which is you better see that our theology is optimistic. There's a teleos, there's, a, there's an end to it. There's a telos is what I should have said, not that you care, but um, there's an end. History is moving in a, in a line toward the end. And the end is when God wins, when the crooked is made straight, as Isaiah 40 says, that the rough places are made smooth, every valley's filled in, every mountain's made low. God's going to make everything right. That's the day of redemption. And we are sealed. We're promised that we're going to get there because God's Spirit dwells within us because the day we became Christians, we're, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which means that I'm a child of promise. I'm not out of the slave market yet. My heart is. Legally, I am. But one day, I'm going to be in the kingdom. And so I wait for that with great anticipation. Hope that's seen, we quoted this just last week, two weeks ago, whatever it was, hope that it's seen. It's not hope. If, it were, if I already had it, it wouldn't be hope. Our Christian life is about hope. And so I'm going to say this. You want to not be living in bitterness. You don't want your anger to degenerate into something that, takes, that has barbs that locks onto your heart, and you're not going to be an angry person, even though, like Luther, you may be angry when you're writing your letter. You might be angry when you're preaching uh, your sermon. You might be angry when you're praying your prayers. But you know what? You, you get done with that. You're a happy person. You're not that way. Why? Because here's one thing you got to do. You have to focus on the day of redemption. You have to have a Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, focus on things above. The outer man can be decaying, but the inner man ought to be renewed every day. As things go from bad to worse, there's going to be more bad headlines to come. 
much to make you mad. It's coming. You live on the planet, you're going to have a lot of bad stuff. So plenty of opportunity for anger, and the anger ought to be parlayed into something constructive, but I don't want to live there, so I should always be going back to the optimism of the Christian life. Not to the exclusion of having headlines affect my spirit, but to the place of knowing that we're going to win this thing. God's going to win this thing. Christ is going to be dispatched, and the kingdom's going to be established. That's a good thing. So keep your focus on the end goal, which that's the answer for so many things in Scripture. Right? I can power through the shame and the despising things that are happening in this world for, for the hope and the glory, the crown that is set before me. Just to quote and, and, and adapt there, Hebrews chapter 12, as Jesus did with the cross. We despise the shame and we look for the prize. And the prize is when all of this comes to be the day of redemption. But in the meantime, I look for things. I look for the barbs. I look for the things that reside in my heart. Verse 31, bitterness, wrath, right? Those are, anger, anger is the word, orge is the word, um, the strong emotion. Uh, the word that's translated here, wrath, is the word thumos. Thumos is the word like, like I'm always hot under the collar. I'm always just easily set off, hair trigger. Um, bitterness, we understand that, a, a play on, on the concept of taste, something that's distasteful. Clamor, we don't usually use that word, but clamor is something you might see in a, in a crowd, in a riotous crowd. They're shouting things, they're loud I don't want to be that person. Uh, slander, like I'm turning this into words that now are sapros. They are bad. They are destructive. They are toxic. I don't want my, my words to be like that. And malice. I certainly don't want malice. That, that word about uh, just evil, kakia, that concept of just, it's, it's just always, I'm looking at things with a negative perspective. That, if, I'm, if I see those signs, I know anger hasn't done the proper job. Satan has taken anger and turned it into this. So look at what you talk about. Look at how your, your default disposition is. And, and if you start to see that it is bitter and I'm always hot and I always have this residing anger, it doesn't come and then it's gone, right, when it does its job, but it resides and clamor. I'm, I'm loud and I'm always brash about the terrible things in the world or slander. I'm just a critic and all I do is, is, is tear people down because I don't like what's going on and malice. Just evil comes out of my life. Bad things happen. Well, then I know there's a problem. So have hope, letter A. If you want to build a letter B, I'd say I got to recognize sin. And sin means when anger is, is affecting my personality and, and I've got to run from it. I got to turn from it. What's the verb there? Put it away. I got to say, no, I can't have that. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I'm just reminding you that I think the context here all hangs together. Not a separate sermon. He's going to talk about the church, and he's going to deal with relationship, and he has already in the book. But here, I think this is placed just as a sentence here before we get the therefore of chapter 5, and all of this is about something that helps me not let anger reside and degenerate into the devil's opportunity in my life. And what is it? It's this word, forgiving, forgiving. There's a kind of forgiveness that restores relationship. You know that. Uh, it's, it's usually combined with a word in the Scripture, reconciliation. It's when hostile parties, to use the word of, of Romans 5, the hostile parties, the enemies, are made right. And that happens when repentance takes place, confession takes place. And, and, and if you could get our governor to repent and confess his sins, right, then, then we could have him over to our house for a you know, fellowship night and, and have a great time reading the Bible together, okay? Let's just aim high there. Let's just imagine. 
okay? We could restore our relationship. Or we could continue to have him be the recipient of some pretty harsh notes from us, right? Why? Because he is continuing in his sin. So where's forgiveness? Well, there is another category of forgiveness. When Jesus was hanging on a cross, he said, Father, forgive them. There was a sense of something that in the Bible is called a releasing. A forgiving is a releasing of this. And and how is that done? I'm glad you asked. Turn real quickly, last passage, Romans chapter 12. This may help. In Romans chapter 12, there is a kind of forgiveness that takes place that is not the kind of transaction that leads to harmonious relationship, but it does lead to me not having the barbs of clamor and bitterness and anger and and hot under the collar, uh, thumos, and slander and malice coming out of my life because I have this relationship with it. Verse 14, I'm ready to respond in a way that seems so counterintuitive. I can bless those who persecute me. I can bless and not curse. That's interesting. How does that happen? He picks it back up in verse 17. I'm not vengeful. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. It's not making a pipe bomb in my garage to send to Sacramento, right? I give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. How could I honorably disagree here? How could I honorably deal with this problem? And what would the blessing even be? God bless you when you're doing sinful things that make me mad? Well, I don't want the blessing to be an affirmation of your sin. I'd like the sin to change, but I'm not going to repay you. It's not insult for insult, and it's not bad deed for bad deed. It's not you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, which even in the way that's stated, we can't live peaceably with everybody, but I can have this transactional kind of forgiveness that says, I am now going to let go of this. How do I do that? Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself. Here it is, leave it. It's the Greek word didomai, but it's the same concept. It, it, it relates to the word ophiomai. Ophiomai is the word to forgive. I need to let it go. And let it go, not just out into space, not by fiat, just saying it's done, but saying, I'm going to turn this over to God. Leave it to the wrath of God. There's an object here. Leave it to God's anger. You're angry, don't be angry. Get through it, let it motivate something, try and make peace, do what is honorable. All of that just fits into what we've studied there in Ephesians 4. But now he says, God is gonna be angry even when you're done being angry, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is gonna deal with this. He's able to control his emotions better than you are, right? To the contrary, your job, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals in it. It may even be the, the kindness of your life that leads to repentance, even though you've made clear that there needs to be something made right here. It's not about, it's not saying I can't reprove or rebuke and exhort. I can't, and I should. But I'm not going to be overcome by evil. I'm not going to be dragged in. So I'm not going to let the enemy make an opportunity of my anger. No, I'm going to overcome evil with good. So I need to learn to forgive, a kind of forgive that leads to me being able to do good. You're going to have to be good to people around the table this week, depending on the extent of your extended family and and what kind of people you have there. You're going to have to be kind and pleasant to them, even when they are really making you mad because you've grown in your godliness this year and you think, this makes God mad, this makes me mad, I'm a child of God. I don't like this, but you're going to be pleasant. doesn't mean there won't be some times to teach or try to correct, but you're not going to engage in the kind of, of, of anger that leads to bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, and malice. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, No, that wasn't the conclusion, but I felt like maybe I should say that at this point. 1 Timothy 4, 
does tell us that the bounty of our world and the good that we can have, the things we can eat, the things we can enjoy, he talks about food in that passage, right? It's all created by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. To be surrounded by people that don't, neighbors that don't, coworkers that don't, a government that doesn't, a world that doesn't. Right? But we need to understand that we have to receive what God gives us with thanksgiving. It's made holy. It's set apart by the word of God in prayer. So I'm understanding things biblically, and I'm praying about these things, and I'm rejoicing in these things. I can do that even amid the evil that makes us mad because the evil does its job of, of stirring my passion to a kind of, of, of negative emotion that leads to some action, and then I get back to what God would have me do, which this week is, I hope, to double down on, on, on thanksgiving. In your life. This is not to, to rain on your parade, but it is to address a problem that I think is keeping some people from rejoicing because all they do is brood and simmer on, on the problems of the world. I'm just saying, would you say something and do something constructive and then leave it? Let's pray. God, I, I know this is a multifaceted issue for us, but I ask that you would give us the wherewithal that we need to rightly respond to your word, to be angry and not sin. And I think to be angry and not sin, we certainly can't be angry about anything but sin. So when it's just inconvenience or irritation or we don't get our favorite meal or don't get our favorite seat or someone cuts us off in traffic, let us recognize that's not, that's not the kind of things that make you angry. God, what makes you angry, but we want to make us angry, and then we want you to be the one who stores that and compartmentalizes that for the day of judgment, but we, we, we deal with it, we do something constructive, we say something constructive, and then we move on. And we truly learn to leave this in your hands with an optimistic view of the coming eschaton, that you're going to lead us to a kingdom, a day of redemption that you've sealed us for, but we won't let the barbs and the pain and the scarring of simmering clamor and, and, and frustration and and malice take hold in our hearts. So God, I pray this be helpful in some ways. We enter into this week and just as a general sermon, I suppose, to help us through the next wave of, of angering events and, and bad news. Let us never be shaken by bad news. As it says the godly aren't. They're not shaken by it. They, they're, they're motivated to pray right. They, uh, let us be more like Luther in that regard. Let's do something constructive and get back to singing and rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen.